Hello. This is episode 41 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. Gentlemen, the most important parts of living is not the living, but pondering upon it. And the most important part of experimentation is not doing the experiment, but making notes. Very accurate, quantitative notes in ink. I am told that a great many clever people feel they can keep notes in their heads. I have often observed with pleasure that such persons do not have heads in which to keep their notes. This is very good because thus the world never sees the results and science is not encumbered with them. That was a passage from something bleeding in from my Nobel Prize reading challenge part of this podcast, but a passage from one of the main characters in my choice for the fifth block in my Nobel Prize reading challenge, a book titled Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis that will have a podcast released regarding it very soon. However, this podcast is about training notation, and I use that quote that I almost wholeheartedly agree with to discuss something that's very important that I think a lot of people are leaving neglected, overlooked, uh, so on and so forth. And that's uh, notation for training. Now, I don't agree, I don't necessarily agree with the first part of the quote where he says it's not about the life being lived, but the pondering of the life lived. I think they're actually equally important. I've gone through stages in my life where I was just sort of living non-stop, fast-paced, without thinking about it. And a lot of times, life calls for that, but that is a default setting without any pondering or processing uh, the life that's been lived, and that's not very optimum. That's just sort of living into the wind. And a lot of people, either assisted by substance abuse or not assisted by substance abuse, live this way, decades go down the line, they wondered, looking back, how the hell they got where they are. The flip side of this uh, is also equally invalid. And the flip side being, one just spends life pondering the entire time. And the reason why that's not a way to go about anything is because you never actually do anything. You spend your life thinking about a life that has already been lived. And oftentimes you run out of things to actually originally think about that you've lived because you haven't been living. So I believe there's a healthy balance involved. And I believe this to be the case with training. In fact, I know this is the case with training. When you want to truly progress in the physical realm of your life, whether you're training as a weightlifter, you're training as a martial artist, um, take any other physical skill involved, honestly. You know, things that aren't as athletic, but more precise and subtle, like fishing or golf or archery, take your pick. If you have a great training session or fishing session, whatever, a great, great session developing your physical skill one day, and your mind and your being gets to a certain place in that day, and then the next day, you have to take 30 minutes to get to that state again, and let's say you only have 30 minutes left to, to train or perform that physical act, and really you've only spent 30 minutes doing the true physical act and truly improving. You've been playing catch-up this whole time, and that's not something that is optimal if you're serious about developing physically. What you want 
is you want to know exactly where your mind was. You want to know exactly where your being was when you left off. And the way to do that, very simply, is to write notes. And if you write notes, very detailed notes, about the training itself, your mental state, your pitfalls, you'll be able to read said notes, remember exactly where you left off, and you'll probably need about 5 minutes, 10 minutes max to adjust. So then... The 50 minutes left or the hour and a half left or how much time you have left is truly spent on improvement. Now, this is going to be a much shorter podcast because it's a very straightforward concept, but it's one that's, I think, is vital, honestly. So, I'm going to take you through uh, three of my training sessions that I had in one of my busier days, uh, which is my Monday. Typically, I'm in the gym for Monday for about... 10 hours. Uh, there's a lot of shadow boxing involved. There's a lot of lighter technique stuff involved, technical sparring, clinch work, stuff like that. But I'm going to list some things that uh, are going to be a bit easier to understand for those of you who have just been sort of dipping a toe and working out or predominantly just involved in weights or Muay Thai. Um, so I have one workout that's essentially mobility that I'll list. Uh, one Muay Thai pad session, so it's just a, a group pad pad work class, and uh, a hypertrophy session with pulling hypertrophy. So I'll take you through uh, the workouts that I listed, uh, the notes, and sort of the directions that I give myself for the next session. So in the morning session, uh, I have what's called knees over toes training. Now this is uh, something I outsourced. Um, I'm sure many of you have seen on Instagram, the guy literally called knees over toes guy. He, uh, he's come back from something like three knee surgeries. And after that, uh, after that, he went from a 19 inch vertical to a 42 inch vertical. And I'm not trying to be an NBA player, but that explosion in the legs is something that is very much an asset for a Muay Thai fighter. So I've begun doing this this week. Uh, so knees over toes training, the warm-up was 10 minutes of backwards walking. Uh, the goal listed in the training was to track the knees over the toes and backwards walking uh, while keeping the hips squared. Completed the 10 minutes. My notes that it still takes roughly three minutes to get into rhythm in doing so. I also noticed that I need to keep my hips more square in those first three minutes and be more conscious of that before the rhythm is established. So... Technically, I was, doing, I was only doing seven minutes of the exercise correctly as opposed to ten. So, you need to watch out for that and be conscious of that. And then the next exercise is 25 tibia raises. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, the tibia is running on the anterior side of the legs. Uh, basically, you'd be standing against the wall with your back against the wall with your legs a bit further out. And you're basically just dorsiflexing, dorsiflexing your legs. Uh, the notes I listed are, I'm feeling more an impact in my hamstrings and the tibias. Tightness is in the hamstrings and is likely diminishing the full impact of the exercise. So it's extra tight this day in my hamstrings. Um, typically I've been experimenting with doing a splits progression, uh, specifically on the front splits earlier in this day. Um, me not doing it earlier in this day sort of compromised uh, this exercise a little bit. Well, not fully compromise it, but diminish some of the, the gains from this exercise. So once again, it lists the tightness in the hamstrings is likely diminishing the full impact of said exercise. 
The next 25 calf raises, uh, the notes uh, very brief. There aren't any problems with this exercise, it's simple completion. So, you know, sometimes it's not that deep. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. If the exercise went great, not much to improve on. There it is. Uh, 25 knees over toes calf raises. Now, this is a kind of a peculiar exercise he uses, and I'm going to try to describe this as effectively as possible for those of you trying to visualize. You have your hands against the wall. Uh, you have your knees bent over the toes, but you're keeping the back straight. And you're doing a calf raise while staying locked in this position. And it takes quite a bit of coordination, to be honest. The notes I listed were keeping an upright torso while focusing on the nuance of this exercise can be an issue for several reps. So you want to stay upright. You want to stay long. The purpose of these exercises is perfect posture and perfect explosion and perfect mobility. So while I may have been getting the calf raise part right every single time and the hips squared part right every single time, uh, the torso needs to be upright and then do that every single rep. So we need to watch out for that for the next session. I'm going to skip the exercise called the Patrick step because that is going to be very difficult to describe. Uh, then it has five by five each. Uh, sp a split squat exercise, that's a really interesting split squat. You start in a traditional split squat position. You go down into, it's more of a lunge. And Sorry, you go, go down into this squat. And then you get on your toes on the front foot and keep pushing, keep pushing your hips forward. And that's going to cause your back foot to be pointed at the end. Now, what this is doing is this is correcting any locks in the legs, any locks in the hips, and getting full extension. And not only that, you're going to be tensing the glute and the hamstring of the rear leg to strengthen in this position. It's a fascinating exercise. And any of you who have hip issues and any of you who have sort of hamstring issues, any mobility issues for... You know, people are really taking athletics seriously, not just weightlifting. Um, fantastic exercise. Uh, the notes I listed for this are, I'm starting with my legs too close together for the first several reps per set. So what's happening here is the legs are too close together. I'm not able to get in an optimum position for a single leg squat uh, into the second half of the exercise where I'm extending the hips. So I need to start with my legs wider. Uh, the third through fifth reps always have a smooth transition. Activation of the glute medius on the right side is becoming stronger with each rep when performing the lunge on the left side. So for those of you who don't know or those of you who haven't been listening, um, I sustained a lower back injury in New York a while ago. Uh, the injury's fine now, uh, sidelining me for quite some time, and now I'm just sort of working on uh, the other nuances that have been left in muscle imbalances. So the right glute medius is weaker than the left. The right leg is slightly weaker than the left. So me really activating that right glute medius uh, to stabilize and balance is uh, it's pretty vital. So, And this training is working wonders for it. Uh, then he, he has an L-sit progression, you know, the traditional just sort of body weight progression. Um, I'm taking that one slow. It's not an integral part of the training, but advances in the front split progression have made this progression further accelerated is the notes that I listed. Rather are the notes that I listed. Um, Basically, the LSA progression, he has it starting on the ground, then you have sort of having one leg up and the other leg up. Now, I haven't gotten both legs off the ground, but I'm getting one leg up each, uh, which is faster than I thought it would go. Couch stretch. Uh, couch stretch is basically where you, let's say you were, you know, you're sitting on a couch and then you get off the couch, you sort of get on your knees. Um, you stay on one knee and you press, you basically fold your shin against the couch so behind you behind your glute 
and the other leg is just in a uh, in a kneeling position. You raise your arms up, and it's getting a major stretch in that psoas muscle, which is phenomenal. Uh, I listed notes, this stretch is vital for finishing the regimen for staying relaxed and in alignment after such strenuous exercises. It's a great finisher to make sure that things don't tighten and seize up and completely negate the training previously executed. So that's going to be, honestly, the most nuanced description of all the training notation here. Um, Because it's dealing with mobility, but notice that I'm being very, very specific with this the very subtle aspects of movement because what I'm dealing with isn't these big movements like a squat or you know a bodybuilding session. Um, smaller movements take more precise notation and adjustments, and they're going to pay dividends down the line. So that's why I'm taking such detailed notes in this regard on the very very small movements. The next one, I the next workout session uh, came right after this one, so it was a Muay Thai pad work class. Uh, at the gym I fight out of, um, the warm-up was 10 minutes jump rope, just could do that in my sleep, um, then we started with mitt work, so we do, uh, we do back and forth, not back and forth, we do one side, does three rounds on, on the mitts, the other guy holds, and then, uh, the same thing for the, the tie pads, uh, so then the coach does this thing where it's, you know, for two and a half minutes of the round, you're working in the primary combination, and then the final 30 seconds of the round, you have a burner, uh, secondary combination that's a bit faster paced and shorter. The primary combination for the mitts was jab, uh, slipping to the left, so I'm tilting my head to the left to avoid a right cross from the opponent slash the pad holder, uh, launching a front uppercut after that slip, a rear cross. Now he's going to throw a wild hook at me as part of the exercise, so I'm going to reset away from the hook by tilting my torso back, and I'm going to come back with a Cross, hook, and a cross, followed by another retreat to reset. Um, that's sort of mirroring the movement of an actual fight. I see there's so many people, so many people, who do pad work that is not situational. And they look really good on the pads, and then they get into sparring, and they're wondering why they're getting torched, because their pad work doesn't have any application of situational... Sorry, doesn't have any situational application as if you'd be in the ring. When you see a lot of Thai coaches doing just one-on-one pad work in the ring, they'll be having they'll have the the athlete basically do a combination and have him move, do footwork in one way, and then you'll sort of corral him in you know in the corner of the ring and say get out of the ring, get out of the ring, and have him throw a certain combination, have him move out. So that's situational pad work. But a lot of classes don't even start that from day one, and they should be. Um, so this class, it's a very good gym, so we're doing this sort of situational pad work despite it being a class setting. So the notes that I had for the mitt work are as follows. I had to tell the pad holder to apply the proper range for each strike. I was able to extend the jab well because I'd created enough distance for the first strike with the slip and the uppercut cross following suit. The mitt holder pressed too far on the counter sequence, however. The only strike of the three it was appropriate for was a second cross in which I could apply an escape foot. The solution was doing a step back before the first cross, which set up the correct range. So let's go through this once more. The primary combination was jab, slip left, front uppercut, cross. Reset away from the hook that the opponent's throwing to follow up with a counter of a cross, hook, and a cross, and then a reset. So what was happening here was my pad holder wasn't a very effective pad holder. Um, he wasn't very good at holding the mitts. Some, some guys, 
they have the, they have their proper uh, temperament and the proper steps a proper atmosphere for holding pads. You know, they're very focused. You know, they're they, they mean well. Um, a lot of the times, I mean, you see a lot of you know professional mitt holders. You know, they're very stoic and very fluid, and they have a certain temperament. Some guys have the temperament down, but they don't have the actual art down, and this is the case. This guy was a. Uh, if you if you're a good pad holder, you're gonna unless specified otherwise, you're going to hold the pads in such a way that the guy that the athlete is going to extend his punches fully, the full length of his arms, unless prescribed otherwise. Like it's a it's an exit. You're you're purposely throwing short for a situational uh, piece of pad work. But this guy wasn't doing that. He was going too aggro, so I wasn't able to fully extend my cross hook cross on the counter after dodging the hook that he was throwing. So, first of all, the notes I have for this are, if I can avoid, you know, being paired up with this guy in pad work, that's going to be more optimum because I don't really have time to constantly adjust. But, right on the fly, I didn't have to make an adjustment. So, I just treated the situation as... The person, the athlete, the, the opponent that was sort of implied by the pad holder was crowding me. So what I did was I did a step back cross, step back hook, step back cross to get the full proper range. And it still situationally made sense. So I made an adjustment on the fly and I also took notes. Don't do pads with this guy because he's not effective in holding pads yet. If he's open to learning better, then that's one thing. But for now, I don't have the time. So that's the notes on that. Secondary combination was, for, for still on the mitts, was defend overhands on both sides, rear uppercut elbow, rear elbow, rear elbow. Um, this this coach who was doing the pad session in particular is very traditionally Thai. Uh, a lot of traditional Thai pad work isn't as fluid. You see the more, uh, what's called Muay Femur style strikers, you know, really technical strikers, they're gonna be a lot more fluid, uh, the greats. You know, we're talking Samra Kamsing, we're talking Samat Payakarun, of course, uh, Senshai, Namsak Noi. Uh, guys who had really good boxing were few and far between. It did very well in Muay Thai. Um, the traditional Muay Thai can be a bit choppier, the rhythm-wise. Um, you know, you throw in almost every strike for power, and it's more rhythm-breaking than rhythm-making. So this combination, again, so the opponent is simulating that he's throwing an overhand on one side, so I'm, you know, blocking up top, you know, sort of combing the hair block. I have my my forearm to the left of my head, I have my forearm to the right of my head. And so I'm blocking both sides, and then right after I block the second one, right as I feel that pad leaving my arm, I rip the counter, which is a rear elbow. So I'm, I'm twisting my hips and horizontally throwing an elbow into the mitt. Sorry, I'm taking that back. I'm throwing, I'm twisting my hips to throw a rear uppercut elbow. So I'm taking my right elbow and doing the same motion as an uppercut punch but with the elbow and then I'm following up with two regular turn of the hips horizontal rear elbows. My notes for this were as, were as follows. Throwing a standard elbow after an uppercut elbow still feels very unnatural. While I never thought about it potentially being a part of my game, it's so frequently used in these pad sessions that I might as well add it. So I, a lot of times, um, guys, when you're sort of thinking about the kind of fighter you want to be, it's, it's contingent on your personality, on the people you really enjoy watching, the people, um, the, your, your body type, you know, your, the length of your arms, you know, how much you weigh, 
um, what style fighter you are. Are you, you know, really aggressive fighter? Are you a counter fighter? Are you an elusive fighter? Are you a tricky fighter? Um, you know, you're a kick heavy guy. You're a punch heavy guy. Uh, you're a knee fighter. You're a technical fighter. You know, this, this, there's so many aspects that go into this. So me, personally, I never thought I was going to do, you know, rear uppercut elbow followed by rear elbow, rear elbow. But I'm partaking in these pad sessions where this is constantly coming up, I might as well make it a part of my game. So that's what I'm saying here. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the pad holding on this bit was pretty straightforward, so it's not really anything the guy could screw up, honestly. Then moving on to the tie pad combinations. So these were longer. Uh, for those of you who aren't even familiar with Muay Thai, um, you know, tie pads are these, you know, rectangular pads that, you know, pad holders hold. Um, they'll hold them like mitts for punches. Uh, but they'll also, you know, they'll hold them together for kicks. You know, they'll, they'll take their forearms and bring them together so you can rip a kick on them, basically. The combination is as follows. Uh, jab, slip left again, front uppercut again, just like the mitts. But instead of following up with a cross, following up with a rear elbow. A left, quote-unquote, comb your hair block. So it's the same type of block I was talking before. You have your forearm on the side of your skull, um, blocking a strike. Followed by a front elbow, and then this is where it gets tricky, guys. And I'm going to do a very, I'm going to try to do as good a job as I can describing this uh, over a podcast setting. Uh, double plume clinch entry. Now, there's a bunch of uh, dominant positions and standard positions, rather, in the clinch in Muay Thai. One of them is called double plume, where basically you have your palms on the back of the opponent's head. Uh, some people do it as high as the top of the head. That's not my jam. Um, some people. Uh, you know a guy that doesn't know what he's doing when he's sort of doing double hands on the neck? Uh, it's not double plume. Double plume is two hands on the back of the head. Um, it's a dominant position. Um, so that's double plume for the clinch. And you're sort of up close and personal. You have the dominant position. You're either pulling that guy's head down to throw a knee to the body or a round knee to the body. Or you're pulling on his head and turning your hips around. You know, stepping out to sort of yank him around so you can put him in even more unprotected position uh, where he's off balance and you're throwing a knee to the body. And that's what we're doing here. So I'm getting the double plume clinch entry. I'm swinging my hips to the left to swing my opponent to my right uh, with the footwork involved. So I'm swinging my hips and stepping to the left and swinging my opponent to the right. Then I'm throwing a right knee to the body. Then I'm swinging my hips to... I'm swinging my hips to the right to swing my opponent left, then throwing a, a left knee, a front knee. And then once more, I'm swinging right, so swinging my opponents to the left to swing my opponent to the right, and throwing two right knees, the rear knees. Then I'm pushing the pad holder away, literally pushing him off. And then I'm blitzing a rear head kick, so a head kick with the right. So it's a finishing move. So there's a lot going on here. So I'll take you through it one more time. Jab. I'm slipping the guy's punch, so I'm tilting my head to the left, I'm throwing a front uppercut. Then I'm throwing a rear elbow strike. I'm blocking the strike he has coming with the left side comb your hair block. So I have my left arm on my left side of my skull. Throwing a front side elbow, so I'm taking that arm that was just protecting me, throwing that front elbow. Then from here, I'm getting the double plume clinch entry. Swinging right, rear knee, swinging left, front knee, swinging right once more, rear knee, rear knee. Push the pad holder away and blitz the rear head kick for the finishing move. For guys like myself, um, oh, and sorry, the second 
secondary combination is check. You know, we're blocking a low kick with the shin, that's called a check. So check left kick, then follow up with the left kick, check right kick, follow up with the right kick. So these are my notes on this, guys. Uh, are as follows. The tie pad combination provides a nice flow for finishing scenarios in and out of the clinch. Being 6'1 in a weight class of many 6'2 and 6'3 fighters makes this an ideal dynamic. The jab comes out best from either a true Dutch shell guard or an inverted long guard in order to establish proper range before receiving a counter to slip and enter with the uppercut. The rear elbow was better thrown while stepping in in order to fluidly engage the double plume. The first two knees are thrown fast for the sake of not letting the opponent properly set, whereas the final two knees are thrown with power in mind in order to hurt the opponent effectively, limiting his fortitude before the pushed into the head kick. This session was taken more for precision than power due to a subpar pad holder. When fighting tie rules, however, combinations like these are perfect for aggressive counter-striking between the inside pocket and clinch range. So, just threw a lot of jargon at you there. I'm going to simplify this. I'm taking notes basically saying that while the pad holder wasn't fully effective, I was able to slow it down, not go for power, even though a lot of the time on the tie pads you're really hitting for power, and really go more for precision and technique here. Uh, I found, and I'm also listening, that I found this combination, the sequence, very valuable um, to my game as a fighter. I'm 6'1". I walk around. I walk around. I walk around at 220. Uh, so a lot of the times I'm going to be cutting down to you know the 200 range, you know dehydrating uh, in the amateurs um, for fighting glory rules kickboxing. Uh, I'll be fighting in the 209 weight class. I'm only dehydrating 11 pounds. That being said, a lot of the guys in you know the light heavyweight weight class. They're 6'2", 6'3", typically. Sometimes we'll have longer limbs, sometimes not. I have very long arms for my height, honestly, so that's not too bad. They still have the height advantage a lot of the time. So me, as a guy who's 6'1 in this weight class, and most of the guys are taller, uh, I'm not going to be fighting on the outside very much. You know, a lot of guys are going to be able to really stick that jab, really pepper me with that jab, you know, keep me on the outside. They can keep me at range with the jab and the cross and rip head kicks. You know, it's, it's a lot easier for them, so... The way I absolutely ruin their day is I stay in the pocket where I'm in more punching range and I stay in the clinch range. Now, what's effective navigation between the two is ripping, you know, full kickboxing combinations, punches, kicks, knees um, in the inside and, and elbows as well. And going in and out of takedowns and clinching and, and tearing the guy's body up in the clinch, you know, being a true Muay cow knee fighter, and then pushing back out to get him off balance and then finish him. So it's very, uh, it's very ringing, very, ag very intense um, mindset when it comes to fighting. Um, it's, it's less ballet-like, um, it's more brutal, but it takes a lot of precision and it takes a lot of transitions. So basically what I'm saying, the notes I took that I value this combination very much and this is something I'm going to work on. Uh, on the specifics, you know, rear elbow was better thrown while stepping in in order to fluidly engage a double plume. So basically if, you know, if I, instead of throwing the elbow and then retracting it, if I just throw the elbow and stepped in and left it in, it'd be much easier to get into the clinch range. 
Um, so certain specifics there. Again, guys, this whole podcast is about training notation. If you want to get seriously good at a skill, you're going to take the most specific notes. So then the next morning, after you've dreamed about whatever the hell you've dreamt about, and you're, you're going about your day, you're doing your morning routine, you say, all right, it's time to you know, further develop my skill. You can read your notes, and you can remember exactly the, the, the lessons you've learned, the subtle movements, and the essences that you're dealing with, and the energy that you're dealing with, and the mindset that you're dealing with in furthering this skill. You're picking up right where you left off. You're not relearning things. Relearning is a waste of time. I don't have time to waste time. So last one, you know, this is going to be a bit easier for all you weightlifting types. Um, it's pulling hypertrophy session. So that's pulling bodybuilding session. How about that? Um, the way I organize my training, guys, uh, when it comes to hypertrophy, I only do hypertrophy three days a week. I'm not a bodybuilder. Don't care. I mean, I want the optimum aesthetics and body composition possible without sacrificing any effectiveness as an athlete slash fighter. So that being said, um, and honestly, guys, for bodybuilding, um, the, the most effective method is, is high-intensity training, uh, Dorian Yates. Um, you know, Dorian Yates to picked up where Mike Metzer left off. You're not training more than four days a week for effective bodybuilding. Uh, the reason being is you have two variables with bodybuilding. You have intensity and you have volume. Now, what Dorian effectively evaluated was obviously the one with a lot more potential is intensity because you're not going to be training for hours and hours and hours on end. And the hours and hours and hours on end thing, as far as hypertrophy is concerned, uh, will only work when it comes to athletes who are using steroids. High-intensity training works whether you're using steroids or not. Um, total of four hours per week of training. You're basically going to failure, and you're going as heavy as possible with bodybuilding. Uh, Dorian would do four workouts a week. If he felt really, really fatigued, he'd be limited to three. For me, I don't go balls-to-the-wall intensity, like muscle-to-failure, because that's antithetical with me effectively training uh, Muay Thai and kickboxing. But uh, I'd still do a fair amount of intensity three days a week of hypertrophy. I do one pulling session, uh, one pressing session, and one lower body-based session. Uh, I still have five. Yeah, five. Is it five or is it four? I'm sorry, I still have four central nervous system based... No, five. It is five. I still have five central nervous system based weightlifting sessions where basically I'm using the Soviet weightlifting system to prime the central nervous system to get stronger as much as possible before the diminishing return where I need recovery. Don't have time for recovery when I'm recovering from Muay Thai. So I get strong almost primarily through the central nervous system. But I also gained some strength using the muscular system in sort of hybrid rep ranges between hypertrophy and muscular strength. And that's what this pulling hypertrophy session is. Now, the other additional thing that I need to mention for uh, the way I organize my training. Effective athletes, every single day that they're doing anything weights involved, will have one of the following movements in all the weightlifting sessions. A squat, 
a press, an interior chain exercise, a pull, a full body explosive, a deadlift, a weighted carry, a transverse plane exercise. So that being said, I'm not going to get all of those in a hypertrophy session. So in the same day, uh, earlier in the day, or maybe just a half hour before when I have a central nervous system weightlifting session, I fill in the blanks of all the other movements. So since this is a pulling hypertrophy day, in my central nervous system weightlifting portion of the workout, I have a squat, press, and an interior chain exercise to get those quotas out of the way. So I have two by five each reverse lunge, two by five each floor press, sorry, two by five floor press, uh, and then two by five each Turkish get-ups. So then for hypertrophy, I have as follows. Uh, four rounds of three ballistic pull-ups followed by nine Pavel Protocol lat pull-downs. Pavel Protocol lat pull-down, pull, wait a second, hold there, and then back up. Eight by eight barbell rows, uh, two-minute rest. Uh, that's filling the quota of a pull once again. So I have one that's horizontal with the pull-downs and pull-ups. Sorry, that one vertical, and then this is the horizontal one. So eight by eight barbell row. Uh, followed by that, four by eight each side dumbbell snatches. That fills my full body explosive uh, quota, but still in the context of hypertrophy. Uh, woman to rest there. Three rounds superset. Uh, this is a trap burner. Um, you know, it's, if you have mobile traps, traps aren't Satan, like a lot of uh, fight strength coaches say. You just got to make sure you're on top of your ability. If you have tight, tight traps, you're going to throw punches like shit. Uh, if you don't, if you have if you have loose traps that are still strong, uh, you're going to see more effective power punching, honestly. So I have a superset with one minute rest, uh, superset of 12 dumbbell face pulls and 15 barbell shrugs. Uh, then I have farmer's walk, uh, three times 100 meter dumbbell farmer's walk. Uh, then I have r explosive rack pulls, four by eight. And then four by 10 each landmines. So let's translate once again. All of you know what a barbell row is, so I'm not even getting into that. Uh, dumbbell snatch, for those of you who aren't familiar, maybe you're not. Um, you know, you have the barbell snatch uh, where you're taking, sort of taking a barbell and sort of the most primal exercise in the barbell arsenal. Um, you're, you have your hands wide, sort of snatch grip. Um, you're lifting it off the ground, you're ejecting your hips to bring the barbell directly overhead in a wide uh, grip, not a shoulders, not a hands over shoulders sort of position like a clean and press. Um, unilateral training is uh, will help with muscle imbalances. So you're doing the same thing, except you're doing it with one hand and you're doing it with a dumbbell. So that's what a dumbbell snatch is. Um, Dumbbell face pulls, uh, you're getting in more of a traditional row position here. Um, so what you're doing is you're getting in that, if, if you see the difference between sort of the traditional rows that you'd see like Serge Oliva do, um, Larry Scott, you know, any of your classic uh, bodybuilders, they have, their, they have their knees bent and their torso horizontal wall and they keep that static position while pulling the barbell towards them. The difference between that and the Yates row is the Yates row, you actually have your, um, you have your torso sort of more diagonal and more upright. That actually puts the lats in a stronger position. I typically prefer the Yates row, but for the dump, for the barbell, sh the barbell face pull exercise, you're doing it in the same position as a classic row. 
and you're literally taking dumbbells and pulling them towards your face. So you're fully arms, all, arms fully extended, and you're really getting that mind-muscle connection with sort of the rhomboids and uh, the traps, and you're pulling them to your face. Then you have a barbell shrug. I don't need to tell you what a shrug is. I don't need to tell you what a farmer's walk is. Uh, some of you might not know what a rack pull is. A rack pull is really simple. It's a deadlift right off the rack. Um, so you're dealing more with the lower back and the back in general rather than uh, the hamstrings and the glutes as you would be with a full deadlift if you're doing it right. You can have different heights on the rack for settings. Um, so if you like really wanted to you know, maybe hit the hamstrings a bit more, you could set it lower on the, on the power rack. Uh, if you're like me, I just want it just, just, just below the knees. Um, so I'm in that sweet spot of really, I'm just hitting the back, but I can still load pretty heavy. Um, and then uh, landmines. Landmines is when you take, you know, I'm not even going to talk, I'm not even going to try to describe the, the piece of equipment that allows you to do landmines. I'm just going to do it the old fashioned way. Uh, you take a barbell, you take, you load one side of it. And you take the other side of it and you put it in the corner of a room so you can sort of like move it around almost as if, almost as if it was on a on a ball bearing system. And what you do is you have your hands on the what's part of the barbell left on top of the weight that was loaded. You stand upright and you have your your arms sort of loaded with the Bar the bit of the barbell after the weight resting. Doing a very horrible job describing this, so bear with me, guys. Um, and you basically turn your hips one way to bring the barbell all the way down to the ground, sort of twisting your body. Bring it back up and do it on the same side the other way. This is training the transverse plane. The transverse plane is the most important plane of the human body yet is the least trained. Now, Pat McNamara, I uh, forget what ex his exact special forces background is, but he went on the Joe Rogan podcast and talked about how you need to be training the transverse plane. That's where quote says, where life-saving and ass-kicking lives. That rotation. You watch wrestlers, you watch football players, you watch firefighters, you watch fighters. They are training that rotational plane. Most guys in the gym, they're training the uh, front-to-back plane, and they're training the side-to-side -side plane. Maybe. Maybe. Um, if you strengthen that transverse plane, you're probably not going to get injured, honestly. The reason why a lot of people get injured is they don't train it, they don't strengthen it, and then they try to do something that's way above their pay grade in the transverse plane, and they injure themselves. Plain and simple. So let's recap that training session once again. I'll tell you my notes for it as well for when I went through this. The so I, you have all these, you have all of these um, these exercises here. I do steal some methodology from Dorian here, although it's not high intensity training because uh, I'm not a full time bodybuilder. You see me pre exhausting the lats, so you start with the ballistic pull ups and the pull downs. Pre-exhausted, and then we're going into the barbell row, so you're really hitting the lats more in addition to the other parts of the back that are involved in the, the barbell row. Um, so the lats are getting a proper stretch already pre-exhausted. Um, we're given sort of the we're giving the body kind of a break, um, and we're not getting too stiff here. We're staying explosive by doing dumbbell snatches because 
Being explosive is far more important in combat sports than being big is, quite frankly. So if I'm going to gain muscle, it's going to be in a context that's effective. Um, the trap burner, uh, that's pretty self-explanatory. That's that's true sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Where you're, it's basically you're pressing the sarcoplasm to get bigger. Um, that's the kind of hypertrophy you get more sore from. Uh, same thing with the 8x8 um, barbell rows. Farmer's walks, um, grip strength, you know, it's time under tension. Um, we're adding more tension to the back. Um, we're doing it, again, in a better context. I do my farmer's walks not in one direction. I'll do forward, side to side, back. Um, it's more effective and more transferable to the ring. So, again, I'm still I'm getting everything I possibly can out of this workout. Uh, and then we finish with rack pulls. So the back's exhausted, and now I'm doing these explosive rack pulls. So I am really sort of ringing, I'm, I'm tearing up every last muscle fiber in the back that's been pre-exhausted and uh, shifting it towards growth. And uh, to stay healthy at the end, that's when we're doing the transverse plane, uh, the landmines. So my notes for this, uh, I didn't actually, did I list weights? I did not list how, how much weight I was doing for the pull pulldown, so there's an error in my notes, guys. Uh, for the barbell rows, uh, 235. The dumbbell snatches, we went with 90s. Uh, face pulls, 50-pound dumbbells. Barbell shrugs, uh, 315. Farmer's walks, the heaviest dumbbells in the gym were 100s, so I just did it with that. I would like to get sort of the, some of those loadable, you know, like beast metal uh, farmer's walk uh, carriers so I can load up uh, heavier on the farmer's walks. I can load up plates for those. Those are awesome. Um, explosive rack pulls, 425. And four times 10 each landmines. Uh, we just did that with... Well, if this is only a plate at the end. So yeah, two plates at the end, so 50 plus... Uh, 95 pounds. My notes for this. Lapses in intensity when it comes to any exercises that have to do with sarcoplasm. Specifically, the six and seven sets of barbell rows. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I don't really like bodybuilding that much. I like the intensity of it. Like I put my, you, you want to talk about, you want to talk about the parts training that you can really just go full meathead about and put on Black Flag, Melvin's, uh, bring the Horizon, Soundgarden, Kill Switch, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, Dream Life, you know, any of these bands where you can just fucking flip it and rip it, you know? That part I enjoy, um, but my primary enjoyment when it comes to the weights is strength, you know, lifting ungodly amounts of weight for new feats of strength, and, you know, I'm primarily a Muay Thai fighter, so I'm, I'd rather be doing that all day, honestly. Um, I'm getting back into full shape, like pre, uh, pre-COVID, pre-injury shape, and I should be making that just in time by the end of the year before I move to Thailand, which I'm really excited about. But there can be no lapses in judgment. And there can be no lapses in intensity. So six and seventh reps of exercises that I'm doing, six and seventh sets, rather, of exercises that I'm doing that I wrote down myself being so far that's unacceptable. So 
holding myself accountable. I'm adding, taking ownership of that. I'm adding that in my notes. I'm writing the mental state in the notes. There's nothing super technical here because it's weights. If you know how to lift correctly, you know how to lift correctly. Uh, the other note I listed is rack pulls on the third set lacked explosiveness. Last four reps were very static. Now, that's fine that it's going to happen sometimes. Um, maybe I should have lowered the weight, but the fourth set went well, so it was obviously just a little bit of fatigue. Maybe I should have given myself two minutes and 30 seconds rest in between rack pulls. That I still have the time to do. I got this session done, guys, within 55 minutes. Any effective hypertrophy session is going to be under an hour. After that, it's the point of diminishing returns because this is all about growth. In terms of the context, guys, of when I applied this in my day, I got most of my intense training for Muay Thai out of the way in the morning session. So this hypertrophy session came in the evening now. So what does that mean exactly? Well, all the you know fast-paced cardio stuff, you know, hitting the mitts, hitting the pads, hitting the bag, doing clinch work, um, had sprints earlier in the day as well. Uh, my Monday's absolutely fucking huge. Um, so I wait until the very end for hypertrophy. I give myself some rest in between the morning session and the evening session. My morning session takes six hours. In that middle of the day period, I get out of practice about 1.30. I get back in the gym at 4.30. So in those three hours, I'm in Golden Gate Park, grounding, recovering, eating a fuck ton of liver, eating, all the, <laughs> eating a bunch of sourdough bread, eating potatoes, I'm putting all that back in me, and I'm writing. That's it. That's it. I take my evening session lighter. I don't hit it as hard. I do more Dutch-based combinations with the private coach. Um, I do more fluid movement. Still, I'm still working, but I'm now creating an environment for my body to grow. I'm not stressing it the hell out. And then right when I get into hypertrophy, I do this. I hit it balls to the wall. The only thing I have afterwards is a splits progression. That's it. And then I can feed. I go home, take a shower, do my nighttime routine, go straight to sleep. The way I got to that routine, where I sequenced everything correctly, was through a bunch of trial and error, a bunch of research, all of which had very detailed notes. If it wasn't for the detailed notes, couldn't adjust to where I am now. It's a really effective split that I'm doing so far. I'm, I'm loving it. And I can adjust it. I can adjust to my, if my schedule changes, so on and so forth, whatever. Unforeseen things happen. Who cares? We'll adjust. But if, you, if, you, if you're serious, guys, about becoming a master in your physical skill, you're going to take notes. Plain and simple. I hope this helped. I hope I didn't get too technical. Uh, that, that's not true. I, I'm glad I got too technical. I um, hope you enjoyed the podcast, though. I hope you find it, found it informative. And I pray that all of you start taking very detailed notes, adjusting, and applying. Until next time, good night and good storms. <laughs>